0: So here was my ranking of people most likely to be in the White House as either president or vice president, other than the default choice, of course, of white men, white woman, Latino man, Latino woman, Asian man, Asian woman, black man, black woman. I was completely prepared for the fact that I would never see black people in the White House at either the president spot or as a vice president. And then in 2008, There was Barack Obama. Now it looks like my ranking could again be horribly wrong because Senator Kamala Harris has been named as the vice presidential nominee and will run on the ticket with one Joseph R Biden Jr. So our word of the week, and I'm not actually sure this is a word is ski we. That's because that is the rallying cry of Alpha Kappa Alpha sorority, of which Senator Harris is a proud member as well as a Howard University alum. Now, these are two facts that will be drilled into your head repeatedly, so I hope you don't get sick of hearing them. And side note, let these AKAs and Howard grads and HBCU folks have this moment. Senator Harris is the first black woman and first woman of South Asian descent to be on a major party ticket. She's hitting a lot of firsts on the bingo card, but along with AKAs and the Howard and HBCU family, we need to let women of color, specifically Black women, revel in her nomination. Now, you would think that would be understood, but unfortunately, she's already being picked apart. And I'm most disappointed that a lot of this energy is coming from Black men. Look, I get it because she's been a district attorney and an attorney general. Uh, She's been characterized as a cop, and that is not meant as a compliment. A lot of the negative comments I'm seeing regurgitated on social media are either untrue, have truths, or purposeful distortions. I've studied her record extensively, so I'm not talking about shit I feel. I'm talking about things I know. First, Let's stop trying to paint Senator Harris as the face of mass incarceration because she was a D.A. and a G. If y'all want to know the face of mass incarceration, let me give them to you. It was Ronald Reagan and the war on drugs, which then continued into Bill Clinton with three strikes and the crime bill, which was written by Joe Biden. And yet, despite those indisputable facts, I'm old enough to remember when black people universally referred to Bill Clinton as the first black president. I'm old enough to remember all the cute Uncle Joe memes all over social media. I'm old enough to remember the fact that most of the black mayors in this country supported these policies and wait for it. So did most black people. Despite these men being the architect of the laws I mentioned, when Hillary Clinton ran for president in 2016, she had to single handedly answer for her husband's criminal justice policy, even though she held no office when he was in charge. And it's like the shit is on repeat now with Kamala Harris. I've seen people say that because Joe Biden picked Kamala Harris, they don't know if they're voting for Biden. What? For the cheap seats. Joe Biden, again, wrote the crime bill and in present day, when asked about it, he still maintains it was a good bill. If criminal justice reform was the issue that mattered most to you, then how is it that Joe Biden is in line for the Democratic nomination with the majority of black support that he's always enjoyed throughout this whole process? Make it make sense, y'all. The truth is. Senator Harris's record as AG and DA is much more nuanced. She was part of an era of tough-on-crime Democrats who were quite popular with the American public. Yes, it is also an indisputable truth that she did at times enforce the sentiment and policies that reflected that error. But it's also true that she often veered from those policies. For example, she created a program as district attorney in 2005 called Back on Track, which allowed first time drug offenders to get a job and their high school diplomas. This was in 05 when criminal justice reform wasn't a thing. Even under three strikes, Senator Harris directed her office not to prosecute anybody under three strikes unless it was for a serious or violent crime. Regardless, if most of us have evolved and become more educated on the devastating impact of mass incarceration, why are we not giving her the same room? Especially since her record as a senator has reflected a much more progressive approach. Unlike Joe Biden. Kamala Harris has recognized repeatedly that the 1994 crime bill in retrospect was a mistake. Here is exactly what she said before she was selected as the vice presidential nominee. Quote, I have a great deal of respect for Vice President Joe Biden, but I disagree. That crime bill, that 1994 crime bill, it did contribute to mass incarceration in this country. And she went on into further detail. So while I understand that mass incarceration is a sensitive issue with black men in particular, I'm disappointed that so many of y'all seem to be loudly standing against Kamala Harris. Is she perfect? Hell no. But for black women, her nomination means a lot. Of course, we all felt inspired by seeing Barack Obama nominated and then elected as president. But this is an entirely different experience for us because we see ourselves in leadership. Black men needed to see it. So do we. And let me keep it even more real. Black men have often demanded, notice I didn't say ask, our support of black men, some of whom have been way more problematic than Senator Kamala Harris, because I'm old enough to vividly remember when black men completely turned on Anita Hill in support of Clarence Thomas and castigated most black women who stood with Anita Hill. How'd that one turn out? So as I said, let us have this moment. Black women voters have turned out at higher rates than any other demographic. More than 90% of black women have cast their ballot for the Democratic candidate in the last three presidential elections. In 2008 and 2012, we had the highest turnout rate among all racial, ethnic, and gender groups. We have carried the Democratic Party. And so, yes, we deserve to see Senator Harris nominated. I know I went a little long on that word of the week, but sometimes the spirit just moves me. All right, let me get into today's guest. He's just smart. That's the best way I can put it. He's an author, a comedian, a podcaster, a huge political voice. And right now he's got one of the best shows on television, which won an Emmy in 2019. If you haven't already, get your life and watch the United Shades of America, which is on every Sunday on CNN at 10 p.m. Eastern. Also check out his Netflix comedy special, Private School Negro. Up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, W. Kamal Bell. So, uh, Kamal, because you were gracious enough to send me a screener of United Shades, the new season, um, I was able to watch uh, the premiere episode on white supremacy. And I can say that I did learn some things. Wow. I did. I mean, as much as I thought I knew about white supremacy, it was a few things like, oh,
1: OK, <laughs> I see. That. Let me be clear. People like you are the ones I'm most afraid of being like, yeah, I know all this. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like, yeah, I study this every day. I write about it. I actually write my own things about white supremacy. So there is an effort to try to make sure that it stays entertaining and that we focus on lesser known things. And also it's a whole team of people. So I learn stuff, too.
0: Well, I mean, I, I, I thought that. um you know, the, that you even chose to tackle this subject was, was pretty interesting in itself. So what made you decide that you wanted to center an entire episode on white supremacy?
1: <laughs> That's funny. I'm laughing. Uh, the network. <laughs> some, <laughs> some ideas okay. come from you and some ideas. Basically, the show is known for, if anything, the, the first episode we ever did where I met with the Ku Klux Klan. And that's, like, that's going to be in my obit. If I have an obit, that's going to, you know, that's what people yell at me in airports. You're the KKK guy. And so th- while we started going to this season, obviously Trump in office, those issues of white supremacy are being, are being talked about more in the mainstream. And there was sort of a sense of, like, could we go back and do that again? And I was just very clear, like, well, I'm not going back to the Klan. <laughs> like, I'm not, <laughs> like <laughs> I'm not doing where are they now, KKK. I'm not doing that.
0: Yeah, I mean cuz you did it in a way where um and and this is something I want to talk about with you in a minute because as much shit as you might have gotten for that episode, you do strike a really nice balance between wanting to honestly learn about problematic people, I mean, just learn like why, you know, cuz I think a lot of us have that same question and not giving a platform to to just pure and total ignorance and I know that that can be, you know, really difficult, but for as much as you know about White supremacy, and um, obviously, you have experienced it uh, yourself um, just being a black man in America. Was there anything that you were able to take away from this episode on white supremacy?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know about it in general, but I don't know about it specifically. Like, we were in Pittsburgh for much of the episode, and I don't know about the Pittsburgh experience of white supremacy. And uh, I'd been to Pittsburgh twice, actually. Uh, met Damon, Damon Young, who's in the episode we went out to dinner one night. Yeah, I read his book which is fantastic. I'm like mad at him because I'm so jealous of his writing Like I'm just like <laughs> like, like, I guess we have to be friends because otherwise I'm I'm just going to be like, I'm just going to hate you like Doc Holiday. so he took me out to dinner because whenever I was in Pittsburgh, I was like, something's weird here. Like I see all the new construction of gentrification and you see a lot of happy white people walking around but just like something, it, something feels weird and he was like, oh yeah, let me break it down And so to learn about the specific type of things that people in Pittsburgh deal with, I didn't know about any of that. Like even a a stat like 72% of the time that black people are on TV and the news and media in Pittsburgh, they're either athletes or criminals. Like that's a huge indicting stat of a whole industry. So I feel like something like that. I'm like, I want to share this with as many people as possible.
0: Well, the one thing, as I mentioned, that I I learned things watching it. Like I didn't when I think uh, in one of the graphics, one of the headlines that was that Pittsburgh was the worst city in America for Black people to live in, which I had no idea because I've been to Pittsburgh once, and you know it was it, it was to cover it was a Steelers game, and I I can I feel like it was a Steelers playoff game, and I I really can't recall which one, but I had a very limited in and out kind of ex- experience, and when I was at the Steelers game. Um, some of my friends who are Steelers fans, black fans, they were like hanging at the game and I went to meet meet up with them for a little bit. I, I guess I, if you would have told me, throw out who you think, what city is the worst for black people? I don't know if I ever would have said Pittsburgh. So what is it about the racial dynamics there that make it the worst city to live in for black people?
1: I mean, I think it's it's it's, it's there's a lot going on in Pittsburgh. I think even where it's located is strange because it's sort of like, it's in the quote unquote, it's like on East Coast time, but it's really closer to the Midwest. It's right out, but it's also right outside Appalachia. So there's just a lot of like, it's this, so it's a super red area that is a, that has this blue dot of Pittsburgh, but it's also one of the things that like, you know, we know a liberal doesn't always mean an anti-racist. A white liberal does not always equal an anti-racist. So I think that like the things that white liberals in Pittsburgh are voting on to make life better for themselves as happens in California, in Berkeley, all over this country, often don't make things better for black folks. And so black folks get left further and further behind. And in a city that doesn't even have the perception, I think that's a problem too. We did an episode about Milwaukee last year. When a city has a black population, but isn't perceived as black, even by black people, even though like August Wilson is from Pittsburgh, it's like, it doesn't even capture our net imagination of like, we should check in on them and see what's going on there. You know what I'm saying? I think it's, a lot of it is just, is perception but then when you look at the stats like i think we have in the episode there's a seven times higher infant mortality rate now that should be headline news every day until you figure it out but this is again the nature of white supremacy black babies are worse less than white babies so i think it's really just endemic to america That Pittsburgh can get away with that and yet have this reputation of like, it's a hardworking steel town. It's the Pittsburgh Steelers. And now on top of that, all this, like it's the new Silicon Valley. It's a tech hub that just is crushing the black book.
0: So um, when you conceived United Shades, um, was there a part of you that was reluctant or at least concerned that people might not quote unquote get it? Or did you have a feeling that this is
1: a series that would resonate with people? I feel really fortunate. I got to this. I got my last TV show canceled at the exact right time. <laughs> so, <laughs> so my TV show was canceled, but at CNN, they had just brought in Anthony Bourdain, Morgan Spurlock, Lisa Ling, Mike Rowe. So they brought in all these people who had had these sort of like docu-series. And they basically said, just come do the series you did over there, over here. And they immediately had success with those, especially with Bourdain. They immediately had all the success and all the acclaim. And I'd always been a fan of Bourdain. And so I felt like if he can do the crazy stuff he's doing here, I think there's a place for me. You know what I mean? Like, I just feel like they're letting him get away with everything. And I just, if I felt like if I could just sort of, like, hold my space, and also CNN doesn't have a lot of shows. So the minute we got the season, I just feel like all we got to do is not fuck this up. (laughs) Like, all we got to do. And and I tried to fuck it up on many occasions. And many people tried to fuck it up. But I really felt good because I felt like I had, I was basically surfing on bourdain's win you know um
0: i want to talk about your relationship with him in a moment but first let's let's talk about those early days of united shades and you and the (laughs) clan uh are you are you amazed surprised i don't know what the adjective would be that people still remember that episode and still ask you about sitting down with the clan
1: I mean, I, I mostly I feel like haven't we made better episodes than that? Like I just feel like that, like we've made some good. I mean, they're not as. I get that that show. I mean, it was also sort of intentionally clickbaity because it was the pilot. And to be fair, it was my idea to do the clan. We were pitching like Kamal goes to the country club, Kamal goes to the rodeo, and I was like, it's like it's that you know it's that Eminem. You get one shot, (laughs) so like I was like, I have to do something that at least even if this doesn't go to series. I will have a story to tell. And I had to do something that, like, and I really thought that Lisa Ling, Bourdain, and Spurlock and Micro can't do. They're not going to the clan. So I felt like I had to sort of very firmly establish my own territory.
0: Honestly, I, I would have a hard time laughing. Like, y'all still doing this? Like, this is so outdated. But what was it like to be in the to talk to Klan members and be in their presence?
1: I mean, it was real I mean, it was stressful. I'm not it was a thing where like I we pitched it, we talked about it. They started calling. The producers started calling clans groups. They kept reporting back. We have a, one group in Kentucky that's interested. So it was like I had a lot of time to think about it.
0: One group in Kentucky that's interested. This must be the most interesting producer assignment. Hey, why don't you find some clan members?
1: Well, it's funny. He's and he's a great guy. I still, we still hang out. I still talk to him. But he like he he would, he would be like, I sort of have to. He's a white guy, of course, because he's the white guy to call. He's like, I sort of have to pretend like I'm into what they're into in order to get them to do the show. Because they sort of have a base level assumption that even, quote unquote, white liberals, you really like the Klan. You just can't say it out loud. So he he's like, I have to. So he would like sit on the phone going, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Mud races. Exactly. Anyway, can we come on Thursday? <laughs> like,
0: <laughs> did they know you were did they know you were black? Did they know that a black guy? Is-
1: they, I mean, they were told like I think it was like three levels. One. KKK members, would you like to talk to somebody from CNN? And a bunch were like, nope. And then it was like, okay, of those who are left, would you like to talk to a black guy from CNN? And then a bunch were like, nope. And they're like, okay, of those who are left, would you like to talk to a black stand-up comedian? And then it was like four groups who were still in the room at that point. And we talked to three of them.
0: Yeah, um, was there anything that you took away from that uh, after, you know, talking to them?
1: I mean, I really did, like the group we talked to, the very first day of shooting was actually the day we went to the cross burning or uh, as they say, the cross lighting. Um, So that was the very first day of shooting. So it was really like right in, right into the deep end. And the things I took away were one, we talked to people in the town about, do you have KKK here? And for the most part, people were like, nope. And we were like a mile from where the KKK was gonna burn across. And so it's it's one thing about like people, and this is what we're talking about right now in America, erect huge blind spots so they can live their lives with as much peace as possible. So, the, you know, I was like, I don't know how you would not know there were active Klan members in this tiny town. This is not like, you know, it's not like we're talking about New York City. It's a tiny town unless you were, and some would say, well, they were here years ago or they were here like when my, when I was a kid, but they basically were like, not now. We talked to one guy who was in his twenties. who was like, oh yeah, they're right over there. Like he was like, he was like, yeah, just go down that road or don't go down that road. What I learned is that again, these are good, well-meaning white folks. I I don't know who they vote for for president, but these were all good people who had erected these huge blind spots so they didn't have to think about the Klan. And then when I met the Klan, for the most part, there was, first of all, I had the legitimate fear that like, what if this is, oh brother, where art thou? And they all run out of the forest and suddenly I'm uh, strung up. I had that, I felt that the whole time I was there. Uh, But for the most part, they seemed like it was mostly dudes. There were some children there. So that was kind of, we didn't put those on, we didn't put them on camera. But for the most part, they felt like people who basically were down on their luck, weren't educated well by their school system, didn't have good jobs, didn't have dreams they felt like they could realize, and had been sort of like, what am I going to do with my life? And at some point, somebody's like, have you thought about blaming black people? So it really felt like, you know, nobody there was like, I'm a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. (laughs) Like, you know, nobody was like, I'm the starting point guard for the, no, there was none of that. It was like all dudes who looked like guys, you'd be like, yeah, you look like a guy who could be talked into the Klan, you know? And and so I think that that's what I took away from it is that a, a lot of this is like economic anxiety that is weaponized as hatred for others. And so I think a lot of that's where a lot of people end up in the Klan it doesn't make them any less guilty. But it is like their fear of not succeeding or the fact that they feel like they deserve more because they're white is in weaponized by certain people into, you know, it's black folks problem. Right.
0: <laughs> well, as doing this series, because you do engage so much with people who most of us will not come in contact with. I mean, we know they exist like we all know the Klan exists. For example, we know white supremacy exists, but, you know, we won't. Usually have the kind of conversations that you're having. Has this series made you more or less hopeful when it comes to people?
1: I mean, hopeful when it comes to people, less hopeful when it comes to structures, institutions, systems, and politicians. You know, I think the worst interviews that I think we do on the show is with politicians. It's unless they're like a small town politician who really is just excited, like sort of like I mean, thank you for talking to me. Nobody ever talks to me. Like we had a great uh, converse, I had a great conversation with a. Uh, uh, with a mayor in, I can't think of the name, but it was in, it was in the DMV. Uh, And so we we had a great conversation, but like major national politicians, even the ones you agree with, it's hard to have real good conversations with because they have talking points or they have an agenda. And to me, that becomes frustrating. So I get, I have less hope for that, but I have more hope for people. If we could get people to sort of, I mean, this is such a trite thing to say, but the minute you take out the team sports of politics about it, People actually have good conversations about what they need in their life. But we so engage in politics as team sports in this country. I'm not trying to say both sides. <laughs> I'm not trying to say both sides are equally at fault. But I do believe that, like if you really get down to it, of course, the black dudes who I talk to who are in gangs on the south side of Chicago have the same issues that the white coal miners in Appalachia have. You know, it's the same. Now the how they how they affect it might be different, but they both want better jobs, better schools, more economic opportunity. And they want to be safe in their neighborhoods. Uh,
0: Your mom brought up this point in the in the premiere episode about how if um, you know black folks, people of color uh, combined combined with disenfranchised whites, all collectively got together, uh, this country would not only look a lot different, it would feel a lot different. But if you know anything from history, there has been a very successful um, plan to turn uh, you know white folks who have. A lot in common with people in, in color against them to make it seem like, no, no, we got to keep you down to get these few crumbs that they're going to throw us. And that's been a very uh, successful play run throughout American history, even being um, run now. Speaking of your mom, there is no way she is in her 80s. I just don't believe this. I was like, <laughs> wait, you, what? Because <laughs> when you brought up, oh, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. will be, ni- I think, 91 right now. Right. And I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. wait, your mom is what? Like, yeah, what's she doing? Can I you, do you know her beauty routine? Because I need to know it. man. <laughs> Your mom is amazing.
1: She quit her corporate job in the 80s uh, and decided that she was going to work for herself. And even if she didn't make as much money as she could have, she was going to be happier. And she also she we, we lived in Boston up in, uh, in, in the 80s. And then she was like, I'm out of here. And she moved to Chicago. She, we moved to Chicago the same year that uh, Michael Jordan was drafted by the Bulls. Harold Washington was mayor. Jesse Jackson was running for president and a woman named Oprah Winfrey was starting a talk show called AM Chicago.
0: Like, <laughs> like so, like, One of the blackest times ever.
1: <laughs> and, yeah, it's certainly, I, I would say Chicago 84, but I think she has always prioritized herself over what other people want her to do or need from her. And so I think that like, and it ain't like, it's always easy, but I think she is just very much like, and that's the thing I think I've gotten from her hopefully is that, the ability to say no very quickly when you're like this doesn't feel right. So I think it's more about how she's living her life. I hope some of it is DNA obviously cuz I'm I hope to make it to 83 and look that good too. My dad also looks great. He's in his late 70s. I feel like I look older than my dad now, but but uh <laughs> so but I think it's about how she, how she's living, you know. She just is and I'm happy that at this point in her life she doesn't have to do anything she doesn't want to do cuz I got her. I'm not I don't have NBA draft pick money, but I'm doing all right.
0: Yeah. So, uh, how does she help you or um, influence your attitudes and your your attitudes, opinions, and experiences when it came to race?
1: I think I just always was raised with the, with looking at the world through the lens of race and racism. I don't think she meant to do it. Uh, again, I was an only child. Uh, she was a single parent. So, and this might have happened to you. You end up at, around a lot of adults. Like you just end up like you get taken places because there's no babysitter or she don't want to get a babysitter. And so I just and this was. You know, I was born in the early 70s, so this is right after the civil rights movement. And so I think I was just always around black folks who were like, "Woo, these white folks. <laughs> like, I think I was just always hearing these conversations about what white people weren't doing or how do we get how do we navigate this situation? I used to have a joke in my stand up act that I was 11 years old before I realized a cracker was also a delicious snack. Uh, so I think, <laughs> yes, yeah, so I was always hearing these conversations and just surrounded by you know, blackness in our house. My mom went to Africa when I was a kid and she came back try, always talking about Africa and how people have, a, have the wrong image. She was in, uh, in Nigeria. She came back, people always had the wrong image of Africa. And she was, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. Records, Richard Pryor records, you know, like it was just like Motown records, you know, uh, Ray Charles records. We were just, I was surrounded by blackness in a way that I didn't, that I sort of took for granted. And of course, as a kid, you get exhausted by like, why do we got to go, what are we going to a book signing for who Alice Walker? Okay. And then as an adult, I'm like, Oh, thank God. (laughs) Like, you know, I I think it's important to take your kids to things they think are boring sometimes just to sort of get them steeped in some, in some new ideas. But yeah, so I think it was just the way it was just the wallpaper that we had was blackness.
0: Uh, Do you do that with your own kids? Take them to boring shit just (laughs) so they could get some, some new ideas.
1: Yeah, no, they go with me to like, you know, on, you know, press runs and, and uh, podcast recordings and, you know, like they and and we, you know, they've been to, they've been to protests, which I mean, now they sort of like them. But, you know, they yeah, we we they, they've been to Martin Luther King Jr. Teach ins, you know, like, I think it's a, it's important. And, and also just to leave the news on just to, and it, it just let them sort of take it in. Don't turn it off when they come in the room. So, yeah, my kids, my kids probably have more boring shit by the pound than your average American kid. <laughs>
0: Is it, because um, I imagine the conversations you and your mom had about race when you were growing up, they're probably a lot different than the ones you're having with your children because you have mixed race children. So what are those differences? Because you are, you know, raising kids that have a dual identity, although in the American construct, they are considered to be black.
1: It is very different because we've been preaching that dual identity to them from the very beginning. Like there's all these books now you can read to your kids when they don't even know what you're reading they are about the idea of holding multiple ideas in your head and multiple races. So, you know, and even with our middle kid who's the most light skinned, <laughs> I would say, uh, and so she's gonna pass for white amongst people who don't know. You know, I think black folks always can look at her and go, Oh yeah, I see that nose. I know where I know you got, her. you know, there's there's a touch in there. But I was like, she's gonna pass for white. So it's really important. For us to let her understand that, yet like you, you are mixed, your skin might be white like Mama's, which is how she says it sometimes. But you are black, and so, and I've seen her like not really get it because to a kid, a color is a color. You know what I mean? Like if I, if something is black, then it has to look black, and it, and you can talk them into brown being black, but it's like, but my skin is nowhere close to black. But we're talking about, I'm your dad, I'm black, so you're black. So yeah, we've been very active to make sure that they understand that they are living a dual identity while at the same time, it doesn't mean that you don't get to claim the white side of your family, you know? So, and whereas with my mom, it was just like, you're a black boy in America, watch out. You know, I got the, I got the talk as we talk about in the episode, I got the talk very early and repeatedly and knew that like my identity as a black boy, later black man was something I had to be aware of at all times. And especially I was tall, I was like over six feet tall in high school. So now even though I'm 15, I'm a man, you know, because that's how it is when you're tall, especially as a black boy. So w- when I walk into rooms and people see me walk into the room, I'm prepared for them to sort of step back a little bit. I'm prepared for them to be like, what's he doing here? And I have to man- I have to figure out how to navigate my way around that. And my mom was big on, expl- on helping me understand that
0: with, um, you know, obviously all the protests and, um, you know, with George between George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, all these incidents that have compiled together. Uh, what kind of, if any, impact did that have on, on your children? Because I'm wondering, are they making the link between, okay, we just saw George Floyd, or maybe they didn't, hopefully they didn't see that video, but knowing that George Floyd was killed by the police and then now looking at their own father, like, wait a minute, these two things are just alike. Is that that's a black man, he's a black man. Like, were you concerned that your children would frankly fear for your own safety and how did you approach that?
1: My kids are, like I said, we leave the news on a lot. There are times where I will sort of forget and my wife will be like, uh, turn, turn it off because of what's happening on the news. Uh, a lot of times that's not somebody being killed. It's just Trump talking. Turn that off. That's not appropriate for kids. My kids know what a bully looks like and they're like, turn that off. The bullies on TV. So, you know, but they caught enough of it and were just aware. They knew what the coronavirus was and they caught enough of the news where one day my oldest daughter, Sammy, who's nine, is like, what's happening? Like what, why are, why are people mad? What's going on with the police? Like she just, she's like, as I say, she's an old school ear hustler. She just sort of sits back and waits and sort of then comes to you a half hour later. Like I, I I picked up some things we need to go over some things. And so me, Sammy and my five-year-old basically went outside on the tire swing we have in our front yard and just sort of like they swung on the swing and they asked me questions about what's going on in the world. And so we had a very, for their age, a very thorough conversation about Because we've talked about police before and how police are not always your friend. And we talked about, and they really, why did they kill him? Why did they do it? Did they mean to kill him? Why would they want to kill him? And I think in general, I don't know if my kids are worried for my safety as much as they're just worried about the whole situation. As much as they're worried about like, what does this mean that you can't trust police? And they accept that that's true based on what they've seen and what I've told them. But I think they're more just worried about the like it's really like I feel like it's like sometimes I look at my kids and like they're worried about the state of the world between COVID-19 and police brutality and and you know and all the things we've seen on TV and Donald Trump and sometimes I I see them get so worried I go wait a minute just so you know for for with like with COVID-19 it's not this way everywhere it's our country that has screwed this up because I don't want my kids to think the world is going is doing this poorly well many parts of the world are but a lot of the world has handled this there are places we could go today if they let us in and <laughs> we can see that covid-19 can be, be can be put under control
0: well i i can only imagine that when you when you think about what's happening now and then you try to explain those things to a child like that's when you're just like damn we really are fucked up like i don't even feel right explaining this it's just
1: like yes yes <laughs> man, yeah yeah
0: this is fucked up <laughs> Um, Okay. I have other things I want to talk to you about for sure. Uh, Some fun questions because I realize when you are considered one of the foremost experts on race, people never ask you about fun shit. (laughs) They're always asking like, "Kamal, solve racism. Let's go. All right. I get it. Um, So I promised some fun stuff in there for you. But college dropout, everybody. College
1: dropout. I'd like to remind (laughs) you, college dropout over here.
0: All good. Um, All right. uh, More with Kamal Bell uh, when we return on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. Uh, One of the questions while we were on the topic of United Shades, I forgot to ask uh, is, and maybe I'm thinking of this because you see the lovely Emmy in my background. What did it feel like to win an Emmy, uh, Kamal, for this show?
1: I mean, let's be clear. It was not on my dream journal. It was not in my list of things I wanted to accomplish in my career. Uh, I'm at the point in my career where I'm I'm at the feed my family and pay my bills portion of my career. (laughs) Like, you know, do work I believe in and provide for my family. So, Literally, when we got nominated the first year, I was like, "Cool, I won!" Like, I just felt like I didn't. It didn't feel to me like that. Like, there was any possibility of winning. And then the year that we won the first time, it was funny because my boss Amy and us, uh we went out to dinner. She took the whole crew out to dinner the night before the Emmys, and she said, "And look, I know we're not going to win, which is fine because it's an honor to be nominated." And we were all like, "Did did somebody tell her something? <laughs> like, <did she laughs> why why did she know we're not going to win?" And so I really was relaxed because, like, apparently Amy said we're not going to win, so I'll just sit here and be cool while this thing happens. And not only did we win, but it was cool because LL Cool J presented the category. And he goes, and I'm sitting there, and he goes, and the winner, and the Emmy goes to, And he does that thing, he does that LL Cool J where he licks his lips and goes, and he goes, <laughs> I was like, why is he laughing? And he goes, United Shades of America. And I got goose pimples right now thinking about it because I'm sitting next to my wife. And she said, I just made a noise she'd never heard me make before. I was just like, oh! like I just couldn't believe that, like, LL Cool J is giving me an Emmy. <laughs> like, it was just the whole thing was surreal. The whole thing was surreal. You sort
0: of sound like the Cookie Monster right I there. Did, I
1: did. <laughs> it was not a noise I had access to until I won an Emmy. Just like it was just like I didn't know what it had. And so the, the whole thing was surreal. And just really, I felt happy for the people who on the show who were in reality television, who weren't in a path to win an Emmy before this show. And so it felt like people who had been working hard and a lot of reality TV shows, people of color who had not come close to an Emmy and now had an Emmy. So I thought I was I'm really happy about that.
0: Well, I know you you didn't get into it for the validation, but I'm sure it's got to feel good. There's something especially, you know, your show is so nuanced and you have to kind of critically think that you have something of high quality that actually was rewarded. That's gotta feel good when there are plenty of black people who are never rewarded for such things. Usually, it's the opposite.
1: So no, for sure. I, I, I as I say to my kids, like we don't deserve this. We got these, but I feel like it is a, it is an acknowledgement that the work means something, and it's work that is important to me. You know it's work that I really believe in. So I think it'd be different if it was in, you know, you can win Emmys for lots of things, but this is something that I really believe in. But I also respect the fact that like, the minute we stop mi- winning Emmys, it doesn't mean the show is bad. <laughs> like, I just think it just, you know, just it's like, it, it's our turn and, or, or what, however it works, yay. You know, so, but yeah, it is a great like cherry on top of the sundae.
0: Um, As a comedian, I feel like you're best suited to answer this question why do white comedians love blackface like what what is that about i can't understand why white people period love blackface but like especially white comedians why are they why when we were going through this recent purging of you know jimmy kimmel and even jimmy fallon i believe being like sorry guys i did this whole blackface thing i'm like but why i don't understand like what is the draw what is the appeal
1: i think here's the thing about comedians oh in general like all of us i would say even those of us who are not, who don't swear, you do comedy because there's a lot, you see a line somewhere that people don't want to cross. And as a comedian, you're like, I think I can cross that line. I think I have the ability to cross that line. Now that line could be about the one sock left over in the dryer, (laughs) like, or that line could be about, could literally be about blackface or the N word or the C word or all these other words. Like you're just like, people tell me I'm not supposed to cross, And this is true like of every comedian. Now, then if you get into comedians who got into it because they were inspired by like Richard Pryor or sort of the real line crossers, then it becomes a thing where everybody's like, okay, I gotta, Richard Pryor said it there, I gotta go past that, you know? So I think it's really about something there is, I think there is something about being a comedian and I accept this, That is a, that you have to have sort of a middle school mentality to life. Like everybody says, don't do this, but I'm gonna do it anyway. Unfortunately, that middle school mentality extends to things, that your adult brain should be like, but not this. Especially when you're when you start to become a successful comedian, you know you have less adult brain and less adult brains around you. You know, like I think that you're like so. Imagine being like Jimmy Fallon. Not only are you putting on blackface, but you're surrounded by people who are watching blackface get put on you, and the person who's putting on you is like a makeup artist who's a professional makeup artist. I mean, the whole thing. There's not one person who goes, "Hold on a second, everybody," because. <laughs> On a basic level, showbiz invites people in who also have sort of a middle school mentality. So I think it like this is not about not being smart people, but we're here because we want to stay up late. We want to hang out. We want to break. We don't want to live like regular folks. We don't want day jobs. And none of that sort of funnels its way into thoughtful adult decision making. It's funny reading
0: descriptions um, about you because the the word that people commonly use is calling you a sociopolitical comedian. what do you think about being labeled
1: that way you're like so what i'm i'm the serious dude like what what does that even what is that even, does to that be even fair, mean? i think that started in my bio and then people were like oh is that what he is <laughs> like i think that, like, but I, all right i was wondering like everybody describes him this way this is interesting. i put it in my bio because people were like calling me a political comedian and i was like but i'm not i'm not i'm not doing like i think what i think political comedian especially when i was growing up it was really like White guys with jackets on, talking about those those idiots in Congress. You know what I mean? Like it just like, and I'm not doing that. But people, because I was talking about Barack Obama and culture and cultural movements, people say he's political. And then I would get put on these political comedy shows, and the audience would be like, What is he doing? That's not political. And so I started to feel like, well, what can I call myself that sounds just boring enough to be political but not so boring as political you know like how, how can I where's the where's the line so I I don't think I came up with that phrase social political but the funny thing is is like I didn't know that that would be the thing people were like okay that's like that's the that's what he is so that I hear that all the time yeah
0: <laughs> but does it uh in a way d- um do, do you I don't, I don't know if, if if stay on high alert is the right way to put it but um I knowing that people especially these days, consciously dig into your background. Like somewhere some, somebody is searching for an old bit that Kamal Bale did in 1998 about something that was talked about much differently then as opposed to now. So like how much in fear, I don't know if fear is the right word, but how much do you think about that?
1: I mean, I, I think about it more than those people do. And so there are times when I've like, like, I've sort of gone back and went, and like I wrote a part of my book about a joke I did in 2003, I think it was, and it wasn't, so it wasn't 19, maybe 2005, uh, but then I look back on now and like, well, very quickly after I did it and I did like, I was like, oh God, like, you know, I had a friend basically have a come to Jesus meeting with me who was like, that's not how we do this. So I, I think about it a lot. I also benefit from the fact that there's just way less evidence from back then than there is for comedians starting today. Like we were, <laughs> we were recording on videotape, You know like we were recording like it was like you know the stuff from the from the mid 90s we were doing it on mini discs you know stuff that like media that doesn't even exist anymore so i do think that if for comedians starting now you're supposed to mess up when you start you're supposed to you're finding your voice you're supposed to regret jokes so i do have sympathy and empathy for comics where it's like especially when you pull up something from the past where it's like yeah but they're not that person anymore you know what i mean or how do you find out who you are in comedy without crossing some lines? So, but I, yeah, I, I have, I wrote a a part of my book about a joke that I did that I was like, that's not, that doesn't represent me. And I, and I, and I feel bad for doing it. Yeah. Uh,
0: Yeah. I mean, I had a recent experience where uh, I feel like I benefited much. Like you said, there was no, you know, people were videotaping, people didn't have phones. They weren't taping all the things that you were doing or videoing them. The entire time I've been on social media, I've been, Under corporate employment. So I've had to follow somebody's guidelines this whole time. So there is no going back to when I was 16 or 17, it was tweeting something reckless and wild and be like, here go these hot NWA lyrics, boom, like, you know, like none of that. However, that being said, um, after a recent experience where um, there was, there was, it, it was, I forget what year it was, I think it was 2009, Manny Ramirez, he had been busted for testing positive. Um, you know, for a female fertility drug. And the reason why is be that is the bat signal you are using steroids. So of course, everybody had mad jokes about Manny Ramirez taking this female. And I shared a joke that uh, was anti-trans from my Facebook group uh, or a Facebook page, I'm sorry. Like that somebody at Facebook had like left this joke and I shared what the joke was. And I was like, that's so inappropriate, but so hilarious that tweet didn't cause a bubble, a rip, nothing. This is 2009, right? Nobody said a word. It was no dragged in a meeting. Mm-mm. I was working at ESPN at the time. And what I and then somebody re- recently brought this to my attention. Now they brought this to my, to my attention in the vein of trying to shout me down about calling out somebody white, white for doing something racist. Like, oh, you so perfect. Boom. What about this from 2009? I was like, Okay, so the whole thing was I say all that to say is like I had not only then I had to realize that if you go deeper into your history on social media or whatever it is, that even the way the way we talk about things has changed. Right. Like you weren't a bad person when you said what I said in oh nine in 20 you are. And I'm happy for the growth and happy that it is that way, but I also had to realize, wow, there are takes and thoughts and opinions I might have had then that were perfectly acceptable in terms of language in terms of how you discuss things that are just not acceptable now, you know um like uh, like like R. Kelly was one like R. Kelly when I was growing up, people listen to R. Kelly, right? I've gone to R. Kelly concerts I would not I wouldn't be caught dead at an R. Kelly concert now, but the way we talked about R Kelly has obviously dramatically changed.
1: I remember when Twitter first started, a comedian's pitch to me is like, it's like an open mic. You can say whatever you want. You can just go out there. And the whole point was to go out there and just have wild, wild hot takes and try out jokes before you set them on stage. And then at some point, it became about your personal brand. And so so whenever I see a comedian's tweet or anybody's tweet from before 2011, I'm like, that era of Twitter was the old West. Like nobody was thinking about it as brand building. Nobody was thinking about being an influencer. It was like, I'm yelling into a a dark room just to see what happens. And so I do have a lot of empathy for people, even people I disagree with when tweets come back from that long ago. Now, to me, the proof is in who are you today? And nobody who knows you would go, yeah, I think she probably still thinks that way. And I think, unfortunately, we've bought into this, the way in which Twitter has pitched it, where there's a permanent record of this stuff that there really shouldn't be. That, you know, there's no other that, because you didn't, it's not like you built a whole platform on that joke. And right now, I'm sure both of us sit around with our friends and say lots of things that we wouldn't go, could you please send that tweet out? <laughs> you know, because we're human beings hanging out with our friends. And unfortunately, we've allowed social media to, to be a snitch, you know, when really it is, it, they did that for their benefit, not for our benefit. Because if, if they go, Twitter can have all those tweets up there. They have all this content. They have all these metrics to say we have these billions of tweets and it helps them, but it doesn't help us. Like it really should have always been after a week, your tweet disappears unless you want to save it. After a week, you might have been like, I probably don't need that still up there. (laughs) You know, (laughs) I probably said my piece there.
0: Yeah, it doesn't really allow, um, account for, I should say, evolution. And and maybe, look, the people that joined Twitter today or have only been a part of it in the last five years, you're so absolutely right. They don't understand. Like, in 09, like, Twitter was like, <laughs> and you can argue in some respects, it was actually the most fun time on Twitter, you know, because. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, it was great. It wasn't taken so seriously. Like, it wasn't like, oh, you know. Yeah. Speaking of you were just mentioning about like, you know, how things have evolved and, and all that and Twitter in general. Um, I saw a tweet that you had about Jeff Sessions, which made me laugh out loud. Um, Cause I, I often bring this up and I'm glad you, you have brought this up a few times too. It's like, do y'all understand that Coretta Scott King considered this man to be too racist? I mean, he was too racist to become a judge. She wrote a letter explaining to people why he's so racist. And I'm like, but how did he become attorney general? Like Coretta Scott King's word was not good enough for people to be like, Jeff Sessions is racist, which boggles my mind. Yep. All that, you know, he ran against somebody who's crazy matches his crazy and Tommy Tuberville and people who did not know that this football coach had all these takes. He has a lot. Um, he is dark web like <laughs> never before, and I'm like, damn, I feel bad for Alabama. You're somebody who used to spend a lot of time in Alabama growing up, correct? You have family that that's there, right? So,
1: yeah, my dad still lives. Okay,
0: there. your dad still lives there. What is it like? Um, I've been to Alabama a, a few times, um, but what is it like when you're being in Alabama, and especially if you're a little bit more liberal, a little bit more dem- Democrat? What's that? What's like that experience like there?
1: Black people and white people in the south just have to spend more time together because that's how the South was built. And so people, for the most part, like you can't run for office up until recently. There was no idea you could run for office in Alabama and be a Democrat. But then it used to be you had to be you had to be you couldn't be a Republican and run for office in Alabama because the party switched. You know what I'm saying? Like so in that way, it sort of means that like party doesn't mean much there, because if you want to run for office, you, got, you pretty much have to be a Republican in that way. Politics doesn't come up until people make it come up, you know, and there's not really like when I go down there, there are definitely times because I feel like a lot of times the fashion I would bring from the north wouldn't have got there yet. Or when I had dreadlocks, they hadn't gotten dreadlocks yet. So there would be like there's a lot of staring. And then so then like 10 years later, when I would cut my dreadlocks off something, they had dreadlocks, you know, like I mean, it was just sort of like, oh, look at you guys. So there is certainly sometimes a tension, but also I was in Mobile, which is um, the third largest city in Alabama which means 300,000 people but it really like I'm taking my wife there and my kids there if you separate out the political element it's just like man this shrimp is good and and people are very are over or friendlier than they are in the north like people will ask you how you doing and wait for a response <laughs> you know like it's just a I really like as only as an adult I used to hate to go there when I was a kid just because I hated having to like I just didn't I didn't like I didn't think I liked it because I was from the north but as an adult I've really come to enjoy it It has been made more problematic in the Trump era because now those political conversations are more out loud and on people's t-shirts and And you see the red MAGA hats and it's just like come on Can't we just go back to the old days where I didn't know if you hated me because you you made good pie? You know what I mean? Like why do we have to it's a so Trump has definitely made it less fun to go down there
0: Well um as I'm sure you know from both living in the in the the North and as well as the South, is that um, Northerners, I think, part of the reason why uh, the South stays so dug in into certain traditions, as racist as they may be, or even just certain things, is because people in the North do have a tendency to look down and to denigrate people who are from the South. And I think that only makes them cling harder to things that, they really don't want to be associated with, but just out of pure stubbornness, they're just like, we're not going to let you Northerners talk down to us. And Alabama, I feel like Alabama and Mississippi, there's the South and then there's Alabama and Mississippi. It's like they get probably the worst stereotypes. Um, what is it that people like myself, again, grew up? I grew up in Detroit, I grew up in the North um, my whole life, have lived mostly in the North my whole life. Um, what is it we don't get about a place like Alabama that we need to try to better understand
1: that that the most open racism I've ever experienced in my life has not come from the south like the most like walking down the street or like walking into places like the most sort of like in my face racism has always been something that I've experienced in the north so the lot of the racism of the south it's not, I'm not trying to say it's not, that it's not there. A lot of it is is really institutional and structural and about like, again, about how the cities are run. And yes, there are times where, where horrible hate crimes happen, but just the regular old walking around, like, did that guy just call me a nigger? That's Northern shit. Like that's like, that's like, that's like, or, or worse. Did that guy just treat me like a nigger? Like that's, that's stuff in the North. Like that's just like, you know, the I got, you know, I never got kicked out of any place in the South. I got thrown out of a record store in Chicago when I was 16 or 15 or 16. I got I got told to leave a coffee shop uh, in Berkeley, California, cause I was talking to my wife, like, you know what I mean? So like, cause they thought she's white and he's black. That's not a good conversation. So all that racist stuff that people have put on the South for me has always been more a segment of, uh, has been more a function of life outside of the South. Um. Uh-
0: You know, as somebody uh, who has traveled the country um, as as much as you as you have, I mean, obviously we have a really big election uh, coming up this year. Are you where does your sense of optimism stand when it comes to what will happen in in November? Are you scared, optimistic? Like, where do you stand?
1: First of all, people should stop putting all their hopes and dreams on Election Day, because no matter what happens, this train is pulled out of the station and it's running out of control and it's going to take more. And also Joe Biden doesn't take over on election day. And the worst thing I think this country could have is a lame duck Trump presidency. If he knew he had two months to just really fuck it all up, I think he would really spend two months fucking it all up. So that's one thing. Yeah. Joe Biden is like, uh, uh, if your tire blows out in your car, <laughs> and you put the donut on. You're happy to have the donut, but you cannot drive for the rest of your car's life on that donut. And to me, Joe Biden feels like the donut. That like we need to get. To, we need to get with this, the tires blown out. Let's put the donut on the car, and then let's talk about getting four new tires. <laughs> like, I just feel like that's how I feel about it. Like, I, I think Angela Davis, I think basically said that, but in a more smarter way that like, we need to get out, of, we need to get this car, we need to change the tire on this car. And Joe Biden is not the forever change. So he's not going to change all the structures and institutions, but I think hopefully he will g- give us the ability to take a pause and start to work on changing the structures and institutions.
0: Well, I guess to further your car analogy, like right now it feels like we're riding on bent rims um you know that the car could completely just go you know just fuck itself up at like any
1: moment the car is upside down yeah the car is upside down on fire and yeah so i don't and you know <laughs> yes pretty <much. laughs> you know it's i it's not and so i think a lot of and you know but also i think the system i get i also get sort of bothered by the fact that even with the, the, the way the system is like the electoral college makes it such that like our votes don't even count as much as our votes are supposed to count. So I think that, again, we have to really talk about systemic and institutional change. Gerrymandering. I think it's why it's important for everybody to fill out the census, makes it so that black votes don't count as much as white folks. So I think anytime I start to get a little bit hopeful, I have to remind ourselves that the system is in place to make sure that even if we elected President Angela Davis, there's only so much that President Angela Davis can do.
0: Um, have you allowed yourself to think about what it might feel like or how you might react if we do get another 4 years of this
1: i don't know that america and i s- survives when i say survives I, don't, I there will still be a place called the united states of america but i think in the same way there's still a city called rome but there's not the roman empire you know in the same way there's still england but there's not the british empire i think the whole i think the whole thing shifts you know you know me and you are both old enough to remember the soviet union you know, Russia's still there, but it ain't the Soviet Union anymore. Things have, you know, so I think for me, it's like, I think that if we get four more years of Trump, that things will be pushed, that not only will things, will institutions really just get more calcified and and hard on people, but the rest of the world will be like, we don't go there no more. That we don't, we stay out of that neighborhood. And I think, you know, like recently when they were talking about banning international students from coming to America, if they were enrolled only online, it's like the reason why this country got to whatever kind of good place it got was because we were welcoming of the smartest people from other countries to come in here, learn, make relationships, invent some new technology, become a billionaire, you know what I mean? I mean, it's sort of like, that's a lot of why this country, it wasn't, that it doesn't come from this country, a lot of it does, but a lot of it comes from outside this country. But the minute this country becomes a neighborhood you don't go to no more, then a lot of that innovation and information and education, we lose to other countries. So I think that like, I think that if we get four more years of Trump, that this, that might be a wrap on America as far as I can tell.
0: Look, as it is because of our ineffective, wholly incompetent response to COVID-19, other countries are really not trying to fuck with us anyway. And I was like, it's the height of irony that, you know, he spent all that time discussing a wall and like you know how we we you know we need to block off other people from the world the world ain't fucking with us right now so you got your wish and you didn't even need billions of dollars to build a wall because the rest of the world has put a wall around us like you guys stay your infected asses in your own
1: country (laughs) right yeah they have they built a wall out of american passports if you got an american passport stay over there (laughs) (laughs) i mean and it's And it's messing up regular shit. Like, I mean, I just heard that like uh, the Toronto Blue Jays are talking about playing in Buffalo, New York, because they can't. Teams won't be able to go into Canada to play baseball. Like, I mean, it's just like, (laughs) like you you ruined baseball. Do you understand? (laughs) Like, you. you,
0: (laughs) But now that we're on a high note, it's time for some fun questions. <laughs> so I, I play a game with my guest, Kamal, called This or That. I give you two choices. You pick one. You know, only the fate of humanity and your blackness depend on it. So, another big. Training day
1: or fences? Training day. Yeah. That's not even, that's not hard. Fences is a hard movie to watch. Like that is like, it, Viola Davis is amazing. Denzel's amazing. That whole cast is amazing. But at the end, you feel like, how did she call my dad? <laughs> like it just feels like, it just that is not, that is not, I've watched it. I've probably seen it twice. I've seen it twice at least. And every time I'm like, whoo. Yeah. So whereas Training Day is a more fun movie to watch. And also I think a lot of people like to hate on Training Day, but it's, I like the movie.
0: No, I mean, Training Day is great, but the the interesting thing to me about Fences is, you know Denzel is he, in. There's no movie you can say that he somebody out acted him, and I, I'm saying this very loosely. But Viola Davis literally put on a clinic in this movie, and it's like, and Denzel is just right next to her, and it's not. If anybody else, if it wasn't Viola Davis, this would be like, oh my god, Denzel. But he just so happened to be with Viola Davis, and it's just, you know, really um, next level. Um, I know you're a big restaurant guy, uh, though we most of us haven't been lately. Uh, the star or baladi?
1: Oh, that's funny. (laughs) These are like my local, my local joints. Uh, so the star is Chicago style pizza. And as a person who spent a lot of years in Chicago, I, whatever you all think about Chicago style pizza, if you don't like it, you're just wrong. So let me just start there. Uh. So I, I would say Bilotti, because I can get Chicago style pizza a lot of places. But Bellotti is like one of the it's just, I didn't really understand Italian food like my wife's part Italian and it could be like something more than just spaghetti. And then Bilotti's like, oh, we got some we got some spaghetti for your ass. So <laughs> I say, but like, also, the first time we went there, there was like a line out the door and one of the servers recognized me. and was like, hold on a second. We'll get you in there. So I have a I have a soft spot for for the celebrity privilege they gave.
0: You me. got some pool up in there. I got you. Oh um, uh, yeah, I got some pull and uh, uh My um, my deep dive research uh, tells me you're a Rage Against the Machine fan. So, "Killing in the Name" or "Guerrilla Radio"?
1: Oh, "Killing in the Name." I mean, I like Guerrilla Radio, but "Killing in" the, that's like that's like some like that'll make you feel 13 again. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, <that's> a, <laughs> I think that song has like three verses and like it's three like like 15 words are in that song. Yeah, that's am I'm I'm a huge Rage fan. I'm a huge Zach La Rocha fan. I, I'm a huge fan of people who are like, who are like, I, sh- I show up when I want to, and then I leave, and you're like, what happened to him? I feel like Zach must get a calls from his accountant, like, yeah, you're good. He's like, I quit the band. Then <laughs> his accountant calls, we can use more money. I'm back in the band.
0: <laughs> um, uh, in the Incompetence Bowl, um, Betsy DeVos or Ron DeSantis?
1: Ooh, I feel like. Betsy DeVos may be worse at her job than anybody. I think cause like I, I would imagine that like Ron DeSantis, like, you know, like Florida's not on fire every day. You know what I mean? Like I feel like he must be there must be something he's doing that where they're like, well, he he did turn the lights on. You know what I mean? Some basic things that he's probably doing better. But Betsy DeVos, there's not one thing I can point to that she has done where I'm like, oh, that was good. There's not not a the not a thing. So yeah, I'm gonna go. I mean, and that's a hard one. But I'm going to go Betsy DeVos.
0: <laughs> All right. I feel like this one may be equally as difficult. Uh, and we'll end on this one. Um, ben Carson or Terry Cruz?
1: Terry, Terry, please. Terry, stop. Terry, Terry, stop. Terry, Lord, Lord. Terry, Terry. Uh, so, wait, who am I picking? Which one is the. Ben Carson the... or Terry Cruz? <laughs> yeah. And the one I pick is the one that I that I that I would prefer. Yes, the, one, that <laughs> the would...
0: one you would prefer. <laughs> and you know I can't wait to make this into clickbait. Come on, Bell says Terry Crews is great. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I won't do that.
1: Here's the thing about Terry Crews. I don't know him. I think I I've met him once, but I just feel like he here. I feel like if I could get Terry Crews in a room, I could I could help it. I feel like I could figure him. I could I could sa- I could save him. I feel like I could because sa- I get where he's coming from. I've had a lot of those. Why can't we all just come together? I get it. I get it. I'm the guy who likes to hug everybody pre-COVID. I get it. I get where that thought process comes. I feel like I just need to get Terry Crews in a room and just say, come on, brother. We're just going to work. We're not leaving this room until we figure this out. <laughs> until, until, I get you, until I get you back on board. I, now, that, I may be too hopeful. I may be too optimistic there, whereas Ben Carson, He's lost. He's right? lost. That's, we uh, can't
0: get him back. That's, that's the get suck, he's he's deep in the sucker place. Like we we can't get him back.
1: No, he's he's gone. He's gone. I'm glad you had. I'm glad you were a brilliant surgeon. You did a lot of good work. But at this point, you're gone. But Terry Crews, I feel like I could just, like you
0: could get to Terry. Yeah, Let's take
1: our COVID test. Make sure we both have COVID. Okay, we're going to that room. I'm going to order Bilotti and Star until we figure this out, until we figure this out. And and you're not allowed to leave until we get Gabrielle Union on the phone and you talk to her and make it clear to her that you've come back around. I don't get to decide when you leave. Gabrielle Union is, is somewhere. She gets a call from me. She picks it up. I hand you the phone. You talk to Gabrielle Union. If you two haven't worked it out, we got to stay in the room, order more Bellotti and Star while you do push-ups.
0: <laughs> now, you know he ain't had a carb since, like, 87, right? You know this is probably I that's what he
1: maybe he maybe that's what it is. He needs carbs. <laughs> he needs car- maybe it's just his diet. He's he's too keto. Maybe he he needs less he needs more uh pizza. Too much keto going on. Yeah, I that's that's my feeling about it.
0: Uh all right, I got you. And by the, it's funny because I like to tease my husband uh because Ben Carson is is from Detroit. He went to my husband's high school. And <laughs> I was like, oh, that's that's how y'all do it there. <laughs> I like to mess with them about it all the time. <laughs> so it's great, great fighter for me in the household. I, I definitely won on the better alumni. Uh, competition in our house, for sure. But thank you, Kamal, for joining me and taking the time out. Um, I know COVID has people kind of restless. And just because we're all at home, that doesn't mean we necessarily want to talk to other people or certainly to do things like this. So I really appreciate you making yourself available. I can't wait to finish out the season of united shades everybody check it out on, on cnn sunday nights 10 p.m eastern correct
1: 10 p.m eastern 7 p.m pacific
0: there you go so everybody check it out in this first episode i guarantee you you'll for sure want to see uh, on white supremacy as all the previous seasons Kamal's getting out of here i am coming back y'all know what's next fuck it i'm bothered Just when I thought that 2020 had gone completely in the trash, here comes two of my faves, Megan Thee Stallion and Cardi B to save the day. They recently released a video called WAP, which does not stand for wireless application protocol. It does not mean, at least within the context of this song, a blow or a beating per the dictionary. WAP means wet ass lady part. And as you all see, I cleaned up what the P stands for because y'all should have known what the P stood for after I said wet ass. Anyway, this song and video, simply incredible. It combines my two favorite things, female empowerment and ratchetness. As someone who religiously listened to Lil' Kim in college, post-college, hell, even last week, I know that Lil' Kim song, I Don't Want Dick Tonight, crawled so that WAP could walk because WAP is a highlight of 2020 something that brings a little bit of harmless joy. But of course, that was the cue for a whole bunch of people to come in and ruin the party by weighing in on shit that wasn't meant for them. And yes, fuck it, I'm bothered. Normally, I don't like to give stupidity a platform, but in this case, it's completely warranted because I need y'all to hear conservative pundit Ben Shapiro read the lyrics to WAP. Take a listen. Whores in this house. There's some whores in this house. There's some whores in this house.
1: There's some whores in this house. Hold up. I said certified freak seven days a week. Wet ass p-word. Make that pullout game weak. Yeah, you effin' with some wet ass p-word. P-word is female genitalia. Bring a bucket and a mop for this wet ass p-word. Give me everything you got for this wet ass p-word. Beat it up, n-word. Catch a charge. Extra large and extra hard. Put this p-word right in your face. Swipe your nose like a credit card. Hop on top, I want to ride. I do a Kegel while it's inside. Spit in my mouth, look in my eyes. This P word is wet, come take a dive.
0: So it's clear, based off how Ben Shapiro read those lyrics, he ain't never seen a WAP, met a WAP. That boy been wop free his whole life. But in all seriousness, here's why I am here to encourage any and all shenanigans by Cardi B and Meg Thee Stallion, and really any woman. Girls and women, we get policed all day about how to look, how to act, what we can do and can't do with our own bodies. So anytime a woman takes control and authority of her own sexuality and body in a way that enrages people, I stand, I applaud, and a piece of my soul is restored. Y'all better get y'all some WAP. Stay unbothered. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent, and Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, executive producer is Erica Clark, and project manager is Jessica Dow. Our theme music is provided by Corey Greenleaf and Ben Darwish. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram, at Jamel Hill.